this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode on the 6th of october india abstained from voting on a draft decision at the united nations human rights council that called for a debate on the situation of human rights in the Xinjiang Uyghur region in China. By a narrow majority of 19 to 17, China and its allies ensured the defeat of a Western bloc of nations that was seeking a debate on the state of Uyghur Muslim minorities in China. The very next day, the spokesman of the External Affairs Ministry in New Delhi hoped that the relevant party, which I will read here as China, would address the situation in Xinjiang objectively and properly. So, should India have voted for the draft decision on a discussion on the situation in Xinjiang, especially since China has resisted efforts to sanction terrorists responsible for anti-India operations in the 1267 Sanctions Committee at the United Nations, rather than abstaining? To discuss this issue, joining me today is Syed Akbaruddin, who retired from the Indian Foreign Service as permanent representative at the United Nations in New York. Welcome to the InFocus podcast, Akbar. Thank you very much, Amit. It's a pleasure to join you here. So, Akbar, tell us, you know, with your vast experience in multilateral fora on behalf and being a senior Indian diplomat, do you think that uh, this the kind of vote that India cast, especially since the uh, uh, margin was quite narrow, I mean, India and one or two other countries could have, in a sense, tilted the balance. So do you think that given our current international situation and our national interest, was this vote in the manner, this abstention, the appropriate one? So, Amit, uh, we need to look at uh, the human rights uh, discussions uh, at the United Nations, not uh, in uh, terms of episodic votes, but in a broader context. So what is this whole machinery of human rights in the UN system? By and large, it's a a system which is insular to what is happening outside. It's a system with its own standards, own institutions, mechanisms, a world of experts, rather than what is happening on a day-to-day basis. We need to look how has this system evolved And what is India's role in this? So for many years, uh, it has evolved in a direction where it's become very divisive. People see this not as uh, promoting human rights, but as instruments to uplift a state's credibility while undermining that of other states. Now, if this is the broader context, rightly or wrongly, if that is how it has evolved, then we need to look at how India approaches uh, the institution and a vote in this broader context. So let me uh, posit for you, India uh, looks at this as part of a longer uh, game where uh, each of these are not looked uh, individually, but uh, where they fit into the bigger jigsaw puzzle. And what's the bigger jigsaw puzzle? The big jigsaw puzzle is one where there is a clear division between uh, developed countries and developing countries. The general feeling is that the human rights mechanism is being used by the developed countries 
to put uh, developing countries under pressure uh, to uh, try and undermine some of them where you may have challenges of another sort. So if that's the uh, way in which it is looked, because primarily most of the U UN human rights resolutions are always directed towards developing countries. And therefore, there is a divide which goes along the lines of developed versus developing in the human rights uh, global governance system. Now, if that is so, uh, India's view has been based on our past experiences and we can get into them if you would like me to. But based, if for the present, I would say based on past experiences, uh, our, our approach has been rather than get into a naming and shaming exercise, it is best to approach human rights from a, a process whereby you can promote and protect them through engagement, through direct dialogue and through discussion. Uh, this is not what is the approach that is adopted in the Human Rights Council. So for almost two plus decades, India has decided that we will not get into the naming and shaming game. Uh, so what we do is largely a defensive game. It's not an offensive game in the uh, human rights machinery. We try and moderate and balance out those who want to play offensive uh, in the human rights uh, uh, system, which means we generally, generally either uh, vote against such resolutions or abstain on them. Rarely, I can't recollect, except for sui generis ones uh, where we vote for, but otherwise that's the general norm. So if that is the norm, I don't think, and that's the norm which has helped us for the last 25 years, to work through a maze that exists in the Human Rights Council. If that is so, why should we change a approach that has helped us? And that's the bigger question. And you either change an approach which has helped us or you then become uh, what one would say opportunistic, jump uh, one way or the other, depending on the wind, uh, where the wind is, uh, is flowing. And I would think that in this case, India opted for a strategy which has served it well, uh, served it well in the past. And as I always say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Akbar, some might argue that uh, in the case of China, we today have a special circumstance, uh, you know, after what happened in uh, the Galwan Valley and the aggressive postures made by the Chinese along the LAC and the disputed international border. Some would say that uh, the Chinese approach in the last uh, you know, couple of years has been very aggressive, uh, very different from a China that dealt with, say, somebody like Manmohan Singh or Atal Bihari Vajpayee. And in that scenario, uh, at a time when the Chinese have played aggressively with us, uh, especially in the 1267 Sanctions Committee, which really has no bearing on their own bilateral interests in a sense. So would you say that given this circumstance, their approach should have been different. So I, I take the point and I concede the point that circumstances have changed and we are facing what are special circumstances. Yes, China has uh, behaved in rather egregious manner on our border. Uh, we have had many other issues with China where we are not happy with them. But let's look at the border picture. 
the broader picture still says that it should not be business as usual, but it doesn't say that there should not be any business at all. Uh, are we not having trade with China? Uh, do are our students not still going there? Uh, are Chinese um, uh, exports not increasing with, uh, towards us? So in each of these, if you look at it, what has been our approach? Our approach has been no business as usual, but not no business at all. And that's what we need to look at and see whether this fits into no business at all or not business as usual. Now, let's take each one of these. If we behave, and I acknowledge that China behaves in an opportunistic manner and in a transactional manner relating to human rights. Uh, let's not forget, China was supportive uh, of Pakistan uh, following uh, the uh, abrogation of uh, uh, Article uh, 370 in 2019. In fact, China was masquerading as a champion of human rights. But how did we circumvent it? Because everybody saw through the Chinese game that was transactionalist, that was opportunist. Should we play that game and lose the goodwill, the cachet of goodwill that we've built over 25 years in international institutions? just for a tactical move, which we don't know whether would have succeeded or not, we don't know. So I would uh, put it the other way that this move has strengthened our credibility globally. It says, uh, it shows that India, despite other temptations, has stood by what it has said. China, they all know that one day it wants to be a supporter of human rights. The other day, um, it, it is um, uh, being targeted on human rights issues. So would we want to be the like China, uh, seen as opportunistic? I would submit to you that, no, we won't like to be seen like that. And our approach here has strengthened that credibility and legitimacy of India as a moderate balance and credible player in the international arena on human rights. Akbar, on the same issue, I mean, you might argue it's in a different context, in a different place, at a different forum. But in September 2005, India voted along with the Western nations and the United States on a critical issue when it came to the Iranian nuclear issue. So how would you juxtapose that vote with this kind of abstention? So again, uh, let's again step back and see, was it a human rights issue? No. I said it was at a different forum. True. And I acknowledge. And our approach has been crafted in human rights terms because uh, we've been at the receiving end, not now, but in the past. And we've crafted an approach that fits us in the human rights forum. It doesn't mean to say that approach fits us in every other forum. No, it doesn't fit us uh, in the WTO. It may not fit us in the IAEA. It may not fit us in other places, including the Security Council or the General Assembly. So I think we need to have horses for horses. And consistency doesn't mean that we need to follow uh, a norm across the board. As long as in international relations, it's rare for anyone to follow a norm across the board because 
uh, circumstances change, uh, historical experiences are different. Our historical experiences on the nuclear are very different, very different from our historical experiences on the human right front. And therefore, I think uh, we have a right to have uh, a different approach on nuclear issues uh, compared to the human rights issue. I don't see these as parallel. Um, I don't see these as uh, infringing a broad uh, thinking of uh, looking at uh, issues which uh, and promoting our national interests. After all, it's our national interests. And India's national interests on human rights are best served by following the policy that we have uh, consolidated over more than two decades across governments. And it has paid us dividends in the sense uh, we have been able to ward off any threats on this front relating to uh, our uh, intrusive approach towards us. Now, on the nuclear, that's a totally different front. Uh, there were different circumstances and perhaps we were transactional in that. I don't want to get into that because it will stray us from a uh, focus on the issue that we are discussing right now. So, Akbar, before I move on to how uh, the so-called, some of the so-called Muslim nations uh, voted on this uh, UN uh, Human Rights Council uh, draft decision, I want to come to Ukraine. You know, in the current context, Ukraine was one of the countries that abstained, you know. Uh, it was one of the 11 abstentions. How do you see that in the current international climate where it is obvious that uh, China is lending, uh, you know, at least quiet support to Russia in uh, whatever is going on uh, in the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine? Um, you know, uh, it's a clear reflection of transactionalism at its peak. Ukraine, generally on such votes, irrespective of the current situation, would be supporting of the supportive of the Western approach and would have voted in support. Today, they perhaps are looking at a transaction uh, in other fora where they can be a give and take on this. And that's why perhaps they voted here uh, to uh, uh, by abstaining. And interestingly, the next day, the Ukrainian delegate at the Human Rights Council announced that his vote should be recorded as a vote in favor of the resolution and not an abstention. But that was, again, it shows a, a approach of a transactional nature rather than uh, uh, an approach which is part of a broader strategy that we follow. So that's the difference between us where we follow a long game. Uh, we are in it for the long course and countries who are in it for transactional benefits. And you can yourself see what the rest of the world thinks of such efforts. So now I'm going to come, Akbar, to, uh, you know, the so-called Muslim nations, as they are termed, uh, Qatar, Indonesia, the United Arab Emirates and Pakistan. They voted no, that uh, this matter should not be discussed. Uh, legal matter should not be discussed at the Human Rights Council. And uh, Malaysia, you know, uh, I think is another country that uh, that abstained. So how do you see, you know, in this international, because uh, clearly, you know, there are concerns uh, of human rights violations, very serious concerns about uh, in, in Xinjiang. And of course, we don't have details, but there are very serious concerns. So how do these countries uh, marry their international position with, uh, you know, with their domestic, uh, in a sense, political requirements? You're absolutely right. 
that the OIC's fissures have been brought out into the open. Out of, I think, 15 or 17 uh, OIC countries, 12 voted in favor of not having a discussion. A four abstained, including Malaysia, as you said, and one, Somalia, uh, voted in favor of that uh, discussion. Uh, so it brings out pretty clearly that the issue at stake was not one of Muslim Brotherhood that the OIC keeps saying, but of each OIC state pursuing its own interests. But I, I would submit that if you step back and have a look, it's not only OIC states, but there were 27 African and Asian developing countries who were voting, of whom only two supported the resolution. And that was Somalia 1 and the other was Marshall Islands. So 24 states, developing states from Asia and Africa either abstained or voted uh, against the resolution. So you can see the north-south divide prevailing even there. So that's the sharper fissure rather than the fissure between OIC and non-OIC because OIC is a forum uh, which states uh, use uh, when they find it comfortable. I'm looking more Akbar, at these countries individually rather than as a part of OIC because, you know, Pakistan is closer to home. Indonesia is closer to home. Even the UAE and Qatar, you know, two countries with which India has uh, with which India has very close relations. So I'm, I'm looking at those countries in a sense individually as, you know, Muslim nations rather than as part of the OIC. So I think it's a valid uh, thing. But if you look at it, two states, there is not much of a uh, requirement of public opinion to be catered to uh, of the four states that you mentioned uh, about uh, two states there is very little input in foreign policy from a public opinion perspective and these are the states in the gulf the other two states i would suggest that you look at their increased in the case of pakistan it is well established that their dependence on china their uh, engagement with china is what they call um, a, a relationship uh, which is all weather in nature. In the case of Indonesia, may also submit that the increased linkages between China and Indonesia in the recent past uh, have, a, have had a role to play in this. If you look at the Indonesian statement, it's a fairly vociferous one. At the end of that statement, they decide and say that uh, however, we've decided to vote against the resolution. So it's a situation where they've calculated that their identity as uh, a Muslim majority state uh, is not major factor and it can be subsumed by factors of another nature where their economic and political interests perhaps like in the case of Pakistan, it's pretty clear, always been clear. In the case of Indonesia, it's a uh, shift which was unexpected. Akbar, before I let you go, uh, you know, one of the things that intrigues me and perhaps uh, the listeners of our In Focus podcast as well is that, you know, we have this vast architecture of UN bodies dealing with many things and, you know, uh, some of them are not very clear to, you know, a layperson of how these institutions work, what is their influence. 
you know, some years ago, uh, the Human Rights uh, Council in Geneva had become important for India as far as the Kashmir issue was concerned. For the past so many years, it's not been as important as you correctly pointed out in your previous remarks. So can you tell us, you know, what is the influence and what impact does it have on an individual country if it comes under the spotlight or it is censured by the Human Rights Council in at the United Nations? So let me start by acknowledging that global governance is extremely weak in practice. They have a role, but it's a very circumscribed role. And that role is largely one of building public perceptions, not of going down a path which will uh, impact either uh, politically or uh, economically in fundamental ways. Yet we are living in a world uh, which is interconnected, uh, where information travels very rapidly and perceptions are becoming increasingly important. Uh, because, for example, let's take this very case of Uyghurs. There are growing movements in Europe and in the US of not uh, buying uh, things where labor from uh, Xinjiang is used or even cotton from Xinjiang is used. So you can see how uh, it's a broader movement. Uh, true, at this stage, it is having very limited impact uh, of a tangible nature, but then uh, no state likes uh, any adverse publicity or impact even in terms of soft power because soft power is soft but it's also sometimes smartly used and hard power is not the only basis of a rise of nations. So I would submit that these are institutions uh, which are not very strong, foundational, they are still in a nascent stage but they have a role and it's a role others take seriously. And that's why China put in everything it has into ensuring that there's no discussion. Ordinarily, a discussion doesn't mean uh, that it's going to lead to a negative income, uh, outcome. But if you are so worried that even a discussion could adversely impact you, you put in all your resources and that's what China did. So I don't think we can totally ignore it. But in the broader uh, perspective, uh, it's still a pinprick rather than a mortal blow. And another thing, you know, I, I was seeing some of the Western media reports, Western news agencies on what happened, uh, you know, at the UN, UN Human Rights Council. So would you say that in a sense, uh, when a country comes under censure, especially from the South, as you called it, you know, the, the news uh, agencies or news agents, in a sense of, uh, you know, important Western powers, which yield enough uh, enormous influence. I mean, they, in a sense, become a force multiplier against an identified country. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's not only established uh, media outlets, but the whole universe of social media uh, becomes a force multiplier. And we are seeing that. For example, in Ukraine, 
the only information and the only voice that is dominant is the western approach uh, very little is now available to all of us to understand what are the uh, other sides views and acknowledge that perhaps that is one more element of soft power converting itself into smart power and having an impact and you have seen that during the last one year or two years it has impacted uh, in all surveys of how china is being perceived globally so there is a impact it may not be as tangible as uh, to be seen right away but it's an impact that uh, when it builds up in small layers at some stage may have a qualitative and quantitative repercussion sayed akbuddin former indian diplomat thank you very much for talking to the hindus in focus podcast thank you amit in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon